0: This morning, I will ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be eventually. We are continuing looking at lessons learned in a pandemic, and I was joking this morning, we are still in part 1b, because we didn't quite cover everything last week. And so we will wrap that up this week. Primarily trying to focus on what Ephesians chapter 2 is going to teach us about uh, the importance of Christian community. That's what we began last week. That's what we will finish looking at this week. I warned you last week we were doing something that I don't normally do. Uh, Ordinarily, we like to go to a passage and sit on that passage and stand in that passage and walk in that passage and, and not move much from that passage And yet, in these next couple of weeks, we will be looking at and surveying larger biblical texts, not focusing really on any one passage. That certainly was the case last week that will likely continue to be the case, at least this week. Now, let me give you a brief recap from what we were talking about. The importance of Christian community, and we defined in a simple way, Christian community being a people marked out by God as His own to glorify Him and enjoy the intended benefits of each other. There's a lot of other things we can add to that definition that we talked about last week. Things like exclusivity, uh, things like diversity, things like being chosen, uh, things like gospel proclamation, spiritual growth, all of those things. Some of those things we'll even look at this week. But what I want to just highlight this morning... Is that we are to be a people specially, specifically marked out by God, identifying publicly with God together and enjoying the intended benefits of being together. If you remember from last week, we did talk about when we reference Christian community, we are meaning something entirely different from worldly community which means the way we interact, the way we gather, the things that bind us together are vastly different from the things that bind the world together, are vastly different from things uh, that define worldly groups and worldly associations. We have this identifier, this qualification, this word Christian tagged onto our community, and that means something entirely different, in fact, something supernatural, something divine. Last week, we also highlighted that it has been God's plan from the beginning and will be God's plan throughout all eternity to gather His people together in a very public, clearly identified and defined way. We looked at all the way back to Adam and Eve, the beginning of humanity and moved through the generations to Noah and Abraham all the way back to Revelation chapter 7 where we see this large gathering of people around the throne worshiping God. That's one of the glorious realities of heaven. Is finally being gathered in full completion as the people of God in the presence of God. We highlighted that the truth is we cannot even rightly, properly understand God apart from his relation And interaction in and through his gathered people. That's how God has even decided and desired to reveal himself. Through the written word, recording his interactions in and through and with his gathered people. So, all that to say and to remind us that being the people of God and identifying ourselves as the people of God is a major deal to God. It's a delight for Him. It's a part of His redemptive, overarching plan. It's something He calls us to do. This morning we're going to ask the question, why? Why does God work this way? Why has God elected and designed and desired to work in a fashion where He's most glorified in gathering His people? Because that's That's the truth. That's the purpose of God's people gathered. They bring Him special, unique, intended glory. And that's the chief aim of of every Christian, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God is immensely, primarily concerned with His glory. His glory being revealed. And His people gathered provide a unique purpose and a unique way of highlighting that glory. In fact, based on what Scripture has to say about the community of God's people, we can say that when we come together, we glorify God in ways that would be impossible if we were separated. In God's overarching plan, He has orchestrated us being identified and gathered and marked out as His people because it brings Him unique glory in other ways that He would not, otherwise He would not have. So this morning, the answer to why God has decided and desired to work this way is His glory. His people bring Him, when they're gathered, the most glory. How they bring Him glory is where i want to spend the rest of our time the first way in which the gathered people of god bring god the most glory is they display when they are together the power of the gospel i want to loosely turn back and reference deuteronomy chapter 7 we looked at this last week God is primarily talking here, in fact exclusively talking here, to Israel. I want to loosely carry its principles and apply it to the church today. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, 7, and 8. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. of Egypt. God looks Israel straight in the face and he says, It's no, nothing in you that spurred me to, to choose you. It's nothing in you that spurred me to gather you, to create you, to, to identify and relate to you and to delight in you. There's nothing that you brought to the table. It's simply because I love you and because I chose you and because I created you, because I formed you, because I gathered you, because I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we fast forward to the church, to the New Testament, to you and I today, and those very same principles still apply. There's nothing inherently in us that attracts God and says, I have to group these people together because I just can't exist without them. The the principle is still true. We are gathered together and given the privilege of being marked out as God's people because He loves us. And that is it. We belong together we have the gospel mission of advancing the kingdom of God purely because God has loved us and chosen us. It's Paul who says I believe in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 1 of the Corinthians chapter 1 where he says it's not because you were noble or rich or powerful you were weak and God used what is weak to shame the strong. You were foolish and God used what is foolish to shame the wise. In other words, you were a loser in the world's eyes, and God set His love on you and gathered you together. I think a fitting uh, parallel to Deuteronomy 7 is Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. God loved us even while we were still sinners. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. There's nothing in us, and yet, God has brought us together, and when we come together, our fellowship screams to the world. It screams that we belong to a God who is a redeeming God. There's nothing special about us. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together. We still sin. We still struggle. We even have conflict and disagreements among ourselves. And yet, we're bound together in such a supernatural way, divine way, that screams. God alone brings us together and God alone saves. Our fellowshipping, our gathering, our worship, our identifying with one another, our community, is not just something we do. Our very existence together proclaims a salvation in Christ we are redeemed people saved people and that's the only thing that brings us together that's the only thing that binds us together and that's enough you see every every group has an has a an inherent definition about itself an inherent nature that it communicates an inherent reality. The gardening club implies that everybody there is a gardener. And the sewing club implies everybody there sews. And a biker gang implies everybody there rides motorcycles. The church implies that everybody there is professing faith in Christ and has been redeemed by a merciful God that they have no inherent worth in themselves other than God has set His love and grace and favor on them. Why does God call us the light of the world, the light in the darkness? Not just because the message we proclaim bursts forth into the darkness, that's primary, but also because our simple existence screams, God is saving people. So, God is glorified when we come together, when we commit to each other, when we regularly regularly gather together, because it displays the power of God's saving work. We call that our corporate witness. It's referenced in 1 Peter chapter 2. In a unique way. Verse 9 and 10. I believe we read these verses last week as well. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It mirrors Deuteronomy 7 so clearly. A people for his own possession. That, so that, here's your purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's doing a few things there that are, that are kind of implied a little bit under the surface. He's highlighting the unity of God's people. Chosen race, singular. Royal priesthood, singular. Holy nation, singular. A people for His own possession, singular. Plural, Singular. So he's highlighting the unity of God's people. He's explicitly connecting the unity of God's people to their salvation, to God's work in their life. He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. you, You once didn't receive mercy. Now you have received mercy. Once you didn't belong to God or anybody, you were a wanderer, but now you're God's people. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of that unity that's stemming out of redemption comes this purpose of proclaiming His excellencies. That is our corporate witness as the people of God. When we call each other to commit to one another, when we say that we need each other, when we say that we're supposed to be family, when we tell each other to love one another and to care for one another and to pray for one another and to serve one another and to spend time together, we're not just doing that to try to create some sort of atmosphere of coziness or comfortability, we're saying, this is how we're created to bring God glory. And in His gracious, divine providence, for reasons that you and I will never fully understand, God has deemed it necessary for Trinity Baptist Church to exist with a corporate witness of the gospel's power in Weatherford. We are here and we are together to declare and to scream by our fellowship God's saving purposes. Secondly, and very closely related, Christian community glorifies God because it displays gospel transformation. Not just gospel power to save, but the power even to transform and sanctify. So, there's a small line of difference I'm trying to draw here. Our existence displays the power of the gospel and that it unites us to God. We're justified before God. We're made His people. Our fellowship also displays the transforming nature of the gospel That we're not just saved and united to God, but we're even being made like God. And we're being conformed to God. And God is changing our hearts and changing our perspectives and changing the way we live and changing the way we relate. My main point is we display gospel transformation through our unity. Specifically, our unity in the midst of diversity. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Flip over there with me if you would, please. This is a major text. Keep your finger, thumb, something at Ephesians 2. We're going to come right back to it. I think it's fitting for us to read again this passage from First Corinthians 12. We read it last week. And though it's lengthy, it's worth visiting again. Because the Scriptures teach that this faith of ours is not inactive or dormant. It produces something within us. And one of the chief things it produces within us is a care, concern, love for God's people that binds us together. And this is seen in Paul's famous, very apt description of the church as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. <clears throat> for just as the body is one... And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God. God's the one acting. God's the one working. God's the one deciding. God's the one orchestrating. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Every member individually, look at the individual language in verse 18, each one of them individually as He chose according to His own divine purpose and plan, He has arranged them. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Skip over to verse 24. Just very quickly. Middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to that part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. What a... What a beautiful dynamic taking place in this chapter. Individual and yet corporate. Singular and yet plural. And God is the one orchestrating it all. And Paul's whole point there, unless it be lost on us, is this. We're all unique, distinct members eyes, ears, feet, hands, nose, mouth. We're all different, and yet we all make the one. So our binding together displays this power of the gospel that transcends differences and transcends disagreements and transcends distinctions. Back over to Ephesians chapter 2. I think this point is much more obviously fleshed out. Maybe, not obviously, but maybe more powerfully. In Ephesians 2, verses 1-10, through 10, we have one of the um, best proclamations of the gospel. Verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, in His mercy and His love, even when we're dead, made us alive, verse 5. Verse 6, raised us up. So we have this beautiful kind of introduction to this chapter of the gospel. Powerful, clear teaching of the gospel. The natural outflowing of that, the immediate outflowing of that is verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Really through the end of the book of Ephesians. But Paul has something direct to say. He shares the gospel and then he says directly, this means the way you care for each other, view each other, relate to each other should be different which is proof positive, it's evidence that God really is working in your hearts. Let me just pause for a moment and tell you why that's evidence, why that's proof. Because in the garden, when sin enters in the world, not only is the vertical relationship between God and humanity fractured, and it's not just fractured, it's broke, but even in the moment of sin, that first sin, the horizontal relationship from human to human is broke. So not only is Adam separated from God, but for the first time, Adam is also separated from Eve. So not only does he blame God, you gave me that woman, but he blames Eve, she gave me the fruit. Everything relationally is destroyed. So the gospel not only restores this vertical relationship with God, but it begins restoring this horizontal relationship with each other. So we see people differently. We relate to people differently. We care about people differently. We think differently about people. And that's Paul's reasoning here. The natural outflow of the gospel is the, the relationship that you have with the people of God. So the gospel shared, and then he says in verse 11, Therefore, because of that, because God's rich in mercy... And loved you and made you alive. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So he's identifying the two parties here that are opposed, Jew and Gentile. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one The hostility. Paul's talking about the relationship here between Jew and Gentile. And he's not just saying. God squashed or lightened the hostility. He killed the hostility in Christ. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off. And peace to those who are near. The same message of peace. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then. Here's what he's saying. Here's my point. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. but You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together rose into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Those two groups of people, once hostile and separated, are now defined in verse 19 as being members of the same household. You know the pain. You and I know the pain. Every human being knows the pain of a fractured, dysfunctional, broken family. So when God calls us members of the same family, members of the same household, He's upping the priority. And Paul's whole point right here is to say the gospel means you view other Christians as your family. That you're one with them. It doesn't matter if you're the Gentiles in Ephesus. Or the Jews in Jerusalem itself. You are one. It doesn't matter if you're the Romans. Or the Colossian Christians. Or the Egyptian Christians. You're one in Christ. Christ. That's the power that the gospel begins to immediately affect within our hearts. We have a new view now of the people of God and belonging to the people of God. Thus, we invite new converts into the church. Thus, we baptize them before the people of God. Thus, we admit them to membership within the church. Thus, we begin discipling them within the church because they are now a part of the people of God. And all differences are not erased they're just reduced to a greater or by a greater binding agent christ you notice in in none of these texts that talk about unity in in fact in none of the new testament texts that talk about unity will you ever find diversity eliminated I believe firmly that God is most glorified in unity in the midst of diversity. When people who are not alike come together under the name of Christ and the true gospel of Christ and are unified in a supernatural kind of love. That's the point of uh, Revelation 7. Every tribe and language and tongue and nation Worshipping God together. What are we supposed to understand from that text? We understand, at least on the surface, that the gospel isn't just an American thing, or a Russian thing, or a Chinese thing, or or any nation or national thing. It's for everybody, all people, every human being. So, uh, I would say, and amend my previous statement just slightly, not all. Just is God glorified through gospel unity. That God is most glorified in gospel unity in the midst of diversity. That's something that's dear to my heart that I believe unfortunately we don't see enough of. Not just in society. I'm talking in Church circles. And it's a, it's a strange phenomenon for me. I don't, I don't understand why this is the case. I wrestle with this thought regularly, trying to diagnose in my mind, what's the, what's the reason that we find and look out in our church landscapes and see people gathered together under all kinds of programs that are common for them? We've talked about this before as, as a church. We, we group up singles together and we group up marrieds together and we group up young together and old together and, and we segregate and we segregate until now we find churches built entirely on segregation. And yes, I will say it. I do not understand churches built around one singular theme. Cowboy church. Or a motorcycle church. Or an African American church. Or an all white church. Or a Hispanic church or a Russian church. I understand there are pragmatic elements there. Language and culture and differences and all of that. But fear, we are only resisting the kind of diversity that we're supposed to have that would glorify God. The difference that we have with one another when we push and we pull and we wrestle and we sharpen and we explore and we question. That's good. Segregating is not. I don't know how much I want to say about this because I have a lot to say and I don't know if it would be productive to say any of it. But the church of God must pause and consider why she is not diverse in most contexts. If we gather a thousand people together, obviously there will be diversity. And even a Among our small group, there's diversity of hobby and commonalities and things like that. But why is the church of God lacking so significantly in diversity of race? Ethnicity and nationality. Does not seem to be a big concern for Paul to separate Jew and Gentile. Let's have a Gentile church here and a Jew church there and I wonder, I wonder why we don't see what Paul describes here. I've had church members in our own church, our church, lament to me the burdens that they have felt because of their race. This is not some issue of the past. It's not some issue that doesn't affect us. Some in our own family have experienced racism. Some in our own family have experienced discrimination based on financial status. I think that's part of the innate proneness of sin within us. We are people prone to discriminate against one another based on sinful judgments. And what's worse, we don't recognize it when we do it. I've been a part of churches before who do not wish to share the gospel for fear that new converts would change the way they do things or be different from them. Unfortunately, I'm not alone. Tom Rayner, the former CEO of Lifeway, identified this as one of his major hindrances to evangelism. He says, some church members are concerned that new Christians will change their church too much. I've heard that line many times. When I was a pastor, I was chastised by a church member who told me I was leading too many people to Christ, they were, she said, changing her church too rapidly. I've heard the same thing. Too many new people with too many new ideas. Too many different people with too many different perspectives. We might not say it with our mouths, but we say it with our actions and we say it with our approach to life that you can be a part of us if you'll do things as we do them or if you, if you conform to our expectations or if you, you look like us and act like us or if you keep your differences just to yourself. We all have to be conformed to the image that we conjure up in our own minds. We never sacrifice conviction. We never sacrifice biblical instruction. We never sacrifice the scriptures. But we plead with God for his glory and for the sake of our own spiritual walk that we might be able to lay aside our opinions and differences to fellowship in the name of Christ with people who are so radically different than us. God, help me not to see human beings in the way that this world tells me to see them. God forbid that I not cross the street to interact with someone because they might just be too different from me. Paul's solution is look at the gospel. And see how the gospel has changed you and changed your perspective and, and eliminated these walls of hostilities, these obstacles, these social distinctions and social boundaries that sinful world has, has created and, and come up with. Let the gospel let you see people through the eyes of Christ. And Christ has saved Jews. And Christ has saved Gentiles. And Christ has saved f- slaves and, and free and barbarian and Scythian and rich and poor and everyone else. May we see people the way Christ sees people. And may we fellowship and invite into our fellowship the people that Christ fellowships with and invites into His fellowship. And may we look like and plead with God to look like the glorious congregation of the saints in heaven in Revelation 7. I praised God, I've shared this story before, I praised God the day that I got to look out at one of our church fellowships and see three different nationalities conversing at the same table, that church was a taste of heaven and a beautiful picture of the power of Christ to transcend all differences. The church of God doesn't need to just know those things. The church of God needs to be willing and ready to embrace how the Bible treats and views and teaches about diversity and its glorious benefit to glorifying God and enabling Christian growth because the gospel is on display in a wonderful way when people who have nothing else in common but Jesus have a unique kind of binding love that can't be found anywhere else. And praise God when that happens. Thirdly, so, God's glorified in our fellowship because the power of the gospel to save is on display. God is glorified in our fellowship because the transforming power of the gospel is on display when we are unified together, committed to one another, Investing in one another, especially when we're different from one another. And thirdly, God is glorified in our gatherings because they enable lasting spiritual growth. Lasting spiritual growth. Romans 8.29 tells us that God is conforming us to the image of His Son. Individually, we're being conformed to the image of His Son. That's part of our the word used there, predestination. Part of our justification. God predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's Romans 8, 29. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. In fact, we're not far from 2nd Corinthians chapter 3, so let me just flip over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, says that is also true corporately. And we all, Paul says, we all, all of us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're not demanding people to be conformed into our image or our likeness or the way that we do things. Instead, we're saying we are all to be conformed into the image of the Son, the image of Christ. And Colossians chapter 3 even says being renewed in knowledge after the image of your Creator. That's the goal. So when we fellowship together, we are to enable that to happen. Encourage that to happen. Spur one another on so that we would be more like Christ each and every day. God has gifted us with the church. The Church is often seen as a burden. We talked about it last week. The most common view of the church today is a hindrance to life and Liberty. But in God's perspective, the church is a gracious, gracious gift. gift of fellowship. A gift that enables lasting spiritual growth. So that means we should be concerned about the spiritual growth of each other. If we glorify God as we grow together, then we should be concerned about one another's spiritual condition. Which means very, very, very simply the bottom level of easiness. I pray for you. I also know you. I care about you and I ask about you and I talk to you and I reach out to you and I invest in you. That also means we should be concerned about our own spiritual growth. Individually. The church will not grow as a corporate unit and body if its individuals are not growing and concerned with that growth. Thirdly, we have to realize that the Scriptures actually teach we need We need each other to grow in any sort of real lasting way. If you think that you can walk with God in a healthy, productive, growing way on your own, then you have no idea how God has elected to help you grow in the faith. Praise God, we all have the Holy Spirit who helps us from time to time and in seasons when we can't be together But God has ordained that the primary way in which you and I are to grow spiritually and in the faith is through the fellowship of each other. We look back to Adam and Eve. What was wrong with Adam? It was not good that he was alone. We can infer from that very statement itself that God has created us not to be alone. One of the most effective means of torture is isolation, where slowly, over a prolonged period of time, you begin to lose your own mind. Your social abilities begin to diminish, then your behavioral abilities begin to diminish. And finally, your cognitive abilities begin to diminish because God has made it so innate and built it so deep within our DNA that we cannot be alone. As much as we may enjoy it from time to time, we are not created to be alone for prolonged periods of time. Eventually, you will descend into madness. It's so contrary to God's design. And that church is so certainly true of our faith. The madman who's been in isolation for too long doesn't know he's mad. He doesn't know he's crazy until prescribed by a doctor, and then he may or may not believe that doctor. And the same is true with your your faith. You may think that you're okay on your own, You don't realize you've descended like a madman into confusion and chaos. And the scriptures are telling you, you need the fellowship of the saints to be healthy in your faith. It's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? Why is Hebrews 11 recording to us the faith of all these um, old saints, Old Testament saints? So we can admire them? Mm, On one hand. So we can worship them? Never. So we could be encouraged by their example? Absolutely. Elijah was a man just like us. Who prayed. God heard. We need each other. We need our encouragement. We need the prayer of one another. We need to study together. We need to visit. We need to talk about the weather. We need to talk about your soul. We need to talk about... Everything we can talk about. We need to be involved in each other's lives as unnatural and difficult as that may be. We need to serve together. We need to watch faithful Christian marriages and faithful Christian singleness and faithful Christian parenting and faithful Christian friendships. And we need the wisdom of each other and the discipline of each other and the support of each other. We need to bear each other's burdens and we need to rejoice with each other who else will rejoice with you at your obedience to God but the church we need the biblical instruction that comes from one another Diedrich Bonhoeffer says God has put his word into the mouth of men that it may be communicated to other men when one person is struck by the word he speaks it to others God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without misrepresenting the truth. He needs his brother man As a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. And that clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet together as bringers of the message of salvation. And as such, God permits them to meet together and gives them community. We need each other, it's not optional. That's why the message of Ephesians 2 is Jew and Gentile, you must be one. You have to be one. God has made it where you need each other. Real quickly, number four, our gathering together glorifies God because it warns unbelievers of their condition. It warns unbelievers of their condition. I'll save all my commentary and just take you to one verse in Philippians chapter 1. A very unique verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Paul, writing to these believers, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and this is a plural you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And he says this, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul's making an interesting case here. His desire is that they would honor God by living lives worthy of the gospel. And what that looks like for Paul in this context right now is striving side by side, being of one mind, one spirit, being together, locking arms, moving as one cohesive body, one cohesive unit. And then he says, when you stand together, not frightened, not beaten, resisting persecution, as one unified unit, it's a clear, clear sign of the destruction of your opponents. The Psalms are filled with such references. At any time people try to come against the people of God, may God make Himself known and rise up and defend His people. That's because even in our death, the way we go to death, the way our brothers and sisters have been killed... The way we share the gospel, the way we fellowship, the way we care, the way we love, is meant to drive people to this reality to see that they don't belong in that. Not just they don't have what we have together, but that they are entirely incapable of it. I can't love like those people love. I can't resist and endure like those people resist and endure. I can't stand for Christ like that. I can't stand for the Gospel like that. I can't fellowship like that. I can't strive side by side with somebody who's so vastly different from me like that. Such fellowship, at least in the context of Philippians 1 here, in some way, to some some degree, serves as a sign to those who reject Christ of their condition. That you will not prevail against the church of God. You will not stand before God. Church fellowships. This happens when churches uphold a serious membership. It happens all the time. It often exposes unbelievers to the truth that I just don't fit in with these people. I don't love the people of God like they do. I don't enjoy the people of God like they do. I don't care about the people of God like they do. I don't belong to the people of God like they do. I don't share in the people of God like they do. And then the Word of God is absolutely clear. You're not of the people of God. The way we relate, the way we care, the way we have fellowship is to be so obviously from Christ. That those who don't belong are convicted of their sin by the Spirit. Number five, last one. Our gathering together glorifies God because it reminds us of the glory of heaven. It reminds us of the hope we have. It reminds us of what Christ has secured for us. Every Christian is promised acceptance in the people of God by the Scriptures. They're promised to be welcomed in the people of God, and they're promised to have community among the people of God, but they're never promised that that community will be perfect until heaven. So when we do the hard work of existing together, even in the midst of diversity, where we prioritize the well-being of one another over ourselves, And when we have disagreements and when we have conflicts and then when we see forgiveness extended and grace and mercy and patience, we have a taste of what is coming. We're driven to long what is coming. It should almost destroy our souls. Almost. To be at odds With a known brother or sister in Christ. Very few things should crush us. Like being at odds with the church. That's why church discipline has such a packed punch in it. That's why God gave us church discipline. Because being separated from the people of God. Is to be crushing. To be opposed to the people of God. To be at odds with a brother or a sister. Is to be unbearable. And when we're in conflict and when we're at odds, we should be broken and say, God, I long for the day when the people of God, when my brothers and sisters and I exist in peace and harmony that will never be disturbed. And when we forgive each other, when we love each other, when we care for each other, when we spend time together, we say, thank you, God, for this ever so slight taste of heaven now. Real quickly, what does this all look like? What what is all this gathering together? It's not just spending time together, but it's nothing less than spending time together. For these things to be true, you have to first have salvation. You're not in the people of God if you're not in Christ. Then you have to be involved. You have to be around. You have to be more than just attending. You have to sacrifice. Uh, no, I disagree, but I'm not going to voice my opinion. I'd rather things be done this way, but you know, it's not, not that big of a deal. I want red carpet instead of blue. You have to sacrifice. You have to spend time together. You have to be here. You have to be in each other's homes. You have to be at the park together. You have to go to dinner together. You need to go walking together. You need to be transparent and growing in your transparency. Hey, brother, I'm struggling with this. And I need the mercy and love of Christ to shine through you. We have to care for each other, commit, put forth effort. No relationship is easy. We have to serve verbally and by example encourage each other? When was the last time you grabbed a brother or a sister, took them aside and said, God is doing this through you in my life and in their life? It's just a taste of how we're different in our relationships. And when we're different in our relationships, we glorify God. And that's how God has ordained it. To get glory when His saved and redeemed people act like saved and redeemed people together. And love each other. Serve each other. Care for each other. Advance the gospel with each other. The point of all of this, this lesson, the first lesson learned in a pandemic, and I hope you've learned is that being alone might be okay for a time, but we need each other. And we need each other to walk in a way that honors God. And we need each other to glorify God. But it doesn't matter if you're at home alone or in the midst of the people of God, if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, redeemed and saved by Christ... Ask the question, what prevents you from being in the community of the saints, the fellowship of the saints like the scriptures talk about? What are my obstacles? What do I need to repent of? What are my hindrances? What can I do to glorify God in the way I relate to the whole church? Father, your word is often piercing and convicting and yet encouraging, and it gives direction And it shows us the kind of fulfillment and satisfaction we can have in being together. God, we just flew by the very tip of the iceberg. And what it means to exist together as your people in this fallen world. Much of the scriptures are devoted to such a topic because, again, that's how you have elected to reveal yourself. I just pray that today, as we give a very brief look at the way we are to care for each other, Your Spirit would continue to drive home truths. And I pray for our church. That because of these texts and these subjects, we would emerge as a obviously plainly, very abundantly clear example of supernatural fellowship where it is undeniable that we are gathered together, we relate together uniquely because of you. May you be glorified in our fellowships, in our commitment, in our time together, And where you're not, may you begin to convict us all. In Jesus' name, amen.